now you have one preeminent prince in a way you haven't had since Ibn Saud. And that creates this severe divide between the haves and the have-nots. Welcome to Network 2020's audio edition of this virtual event. Be sure to check out our other events, media, and videos at network2020.org. afternoon, good evening, good morning. Welcome everyone uh, to the joint production of Network 2020 and the Institute of Current World Affairs, uh, where we, we will be talking about Saudi Arabia's hidden worlds, youth economy and vision 2030 today with David Kenner, moderated by Dirk van de Walla. Um, really quickly before we begin, I'll just give a few words about Network 2020. So for those of you who are joining us for the first time, we are an inclusive international community. We're based out of New York. Um, and we really try to bridge the gap between the private sector and the foreign policy worlds. Um, and we're, we really work on leveraging entrepreneurial, emerging and established leaders to help drive and highlight innovative solutions to foreign policy challenges. So we have several different programs of which this virtual briefing series is one. So I encourage you to check out our website, network2020.org for more information. And so with that, I'd like to turn it over to um, Greg Pfeiffer for um, a little bit of information about the Institute of Current World Affairs. Thank you so much, Courtney. And we're delighted to be partnering with Network 2020 uh, once again. It would be difficult to come up with the name of another US ally so important and problematic for our security policy in the United States and also a country that is so little known to most Americans. Saudi Arabia, society there is largely a closed book and our conceptions of it are rife with stereotypes. Now in the era of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, his rule symbolized abroad by the murder of the dissident author Jamal Khashoggi. But before we get to this afternoon's discussion, I'd like to say just a few words about the Institute of Current World Affairs because ICWA, as we call it, has a connection to Saudi Arabia's history. The Institute's founder was the philanthropist and diplomat Charles Crane, an heir to the Chicago plumbing family fortune. He was a world traveler and he was a friend and advisor to President Woodrow Wilson. During his travels, he became particularly interested in the Arabian Peninsula. And in February, 1931, he met Abdul Aziz Ibn Saud, founder of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. They spent five days together in the southern city of Jeddah, dining and exchanging ideas. At one point, Crane asked the king whether he'd explored the possibility of using artesian wells to irrigate desert agriculture. Crane said he'd used the technique to grow figs and dates at his ranch in California. And he offered to finance an expedition to prospect for water with his California mining engineer, Carl S. Twitchell. The king accepted, but after months of exploration, Twitchell reported back saying he had found little underground water, but he did find signs of oil. So the king offered Crane a proposal. If he would handle the business of petroleum development in Saudi Arabia, Ibn Saud would split the profits 50-50. 
Quain declined, saying his motivation was friendship, not commercial gain. He also advised the king to develop his country's own resources and not rely on aid from abroad. The king neglected Crane's advice. Instead, he asked Twitchell whether he could, in the words of a Crane letter, find capital which would be interested in testing the possibilities of oil. Twitchell got in touch with the Standard Oil Company of California, and the rest, as they say, is history. Earlier, Crane had established the Institute of Current World Affairs to advance American understanding of global societies by sending young professionals and scholars on fellowships abroad to gain deep grassroots knowledge of countries and regions around the world. Almost a century on, our alumni include a host of distinguished internationalists, including our moderator today. Dirk Vandewala is a renowned Libya scholar and a Dartmouth professor. He was an Institute Fellow in the Middle East and North Africa, in Libya, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, and Egypt. Later, he was an Institute Trustee and Board Chair. He's written internationally acclaimed books on Libya and edited other volumes and penned many academic articles. Among other things, he served as a UN political advisor on Libya following the end of the Qaddafi regime. Dirk will discuss Saudi Arabia with our main speaker, David Kenner, and moderate a Q&A with audience questions, as Courtney has said. But first, David will report on his two years as an ICWA fellow that he just wrapped up in May. He's an accomplished journalist who examined plans for economic change and society, especially young people in Saudi Arabia. He split his time between his base in Riyadh and his home in Beirut, where he also examined Lebanon's unraveling before and after last summer's devastating port explosion. I should say that uh, David is joining us from Beirut, so if there are any uh, unexpected um, internet connections, please bear with us and we, we will try to get him back. Uh, before his fellowship, David was Middle East editor at Foreign Policy Magazine and has written for many other outlets. With that, I will hand off to David for his report, after which Dirk will take over for a discussion. David. Thank you so much, Greg, for that very kind introduction. Um, the great paradox of my past decade in the Middle East is that the longer I stay here, the less comfortable I am drawing sweeping conclusions about the communities in which I have lived. I'm willing to bet that some of you listening now have been surprised by the twists and turns of American politics over the past several years. I have watched the same dynamic play out in Saudi Arabia. People who have, people who have spent their entire lives in the kingdom often struggle, struggle to make sense of their history, their countrymen, and the direction in which their nation is heading. Time and again, I have found that any hard-won observation I have gained about Saudi Arabia has only raised new questions for me. What other option is there but a healthy do dose of humility? Like the United States, Saudi Arabia has long nurtured a sense of its own exceptionalism. It is home to the two holiest sites in Islam, the Kaaba in Mecca and the Prophet's Mosque in Medina. And the question of what it means to be a proper Muslim lo looms large for many Saudi citizens and officials alike. I cannot count the number of times when I was asked by taxi drivers, hotel clerks, or anyone else who I'm happened to strike up a conversation with, whether I had, I had accepted Islam. One taxi driver lectured me that he had had seven children by the time he was my age and made me promise that I would name my first son Muhammad, an intense conversation for a 7 a.m. car ride. 
In years past, Saudi officials spoke regularly about the kingdom's khususiyah, or cultural particularism, to justify prohibitions preventing women from driving or the absence of movie theaters in the kingdom. But even as the Saudi leadership has worked to dispel this arch conservative vision of the kingdom, it has left other caricatures in place. Foreign foreigners tend to see the kingdom as a land of boundless plenty. Even the brokest Saudi got a Mercedes. I listened to American comedian Eddie Griffin tell a crowd in Riyadh in December 2019, y'all got some money. In my first week in Riyadh, the rickety ceiling of my dingy apartment collapsed during a rainy night, sending a small waterfall down on my head. So Eddie's observation about the country's wealth was news to me. It would have also been news to many of the Saudis I've met over the past two years, often young men far from the capital who are struggling to find work and earn enough money to get married. The longer I lived in Saudi Arabia, the larger and more diverse it appeared to me. It is a country riven along geographic, economic, and ideological lines. The societal expectations placed on men and women, rich and poor, and rural and urban inhabitants are very different, as are sometimes the laws that govern their lives. In the absence of broad conclusions, what I am left with is a series of stories. It is my hope that these interactions with the people who welcomed me to Saudi Arabia point the way toward a larger truth about the kingdom. Let me tell you some of them. Scene one, Jeddah, November, 2019. I walk into a Lebanese restaurant to meet Mohammed, who had recently returned from completing his master's degree abroad. He's wearing a pristine white thobe, the ankle length tunic worn by most Saudi men. I am wearing jeans and a dress shirt that has become soaked through with sweat after a 10 minute walk through the city. Several months into my fellowship and I still have not learned my lesson, about trying to traverse Saudi cities on foot. This is my second trip to Jeddah, and it is quickly becoming one of my favorite destinations in the kingdom. It is more socially liberal than Riyadh and more gossipy too. Many in the city's merchant class have not prospered from the state's spending spree, and they are more than happy to complain about it. It is more ethnically diverse as well. As a port city on the Red Sea, it has long been the first stop for pilgrims on their way to Islam's holy sites. And over the centuries, many of these pilgrims have chosen to stay in Jeddah. Even as many Jadawis prize that diversity, they fear that it has led other parts of the country to not consider them real Saudis. They call us Tarsh al-Bahar, one friend complained, vomit from the sea. Mohammed had recently returned to Saudi Arabia to launch his career as an entrepreneur. His sisters were studying abroad now as well, but he didn't think they would ever come back. Their lives were too constrained at home. He was more sanguine about his own prospects. I'm a man from Gassim, he said. The system was built to work for people like me. Gassim is a region northwest of Riyadh with a reputation for conservatism and staunch support for the monarchy. Its residents have long reaped the benefits of their close relationship with the Al Saud, rising the ranks in the state to become influential judges, bureaucrats, and generals. But I was confused. I knew my friend had grown up in Jeddah, not far from where we were sitting now. His parents, he explained, were both from Gassim. He considers himself a Jadawi, but he knows that that is not how others in the city would see him. As we were speaking, a large group of men wearing checkered red and white headdresses sat down at the table across from us. Inclining his head toward their table and lowering his voice, Muhammad said, see those guys from Jeddah there? If we were to get in a conversation with them, it would be obvious that they see me as from somewhere else. There would be a hierarchy. 
Stumbling across social divisions like these was a constant feature of my time in Saudi Arabia. At times, the dividing lines were not what an outsider like me would expect. During one trip to a desert camp outside Riyadh, one of my friends explained how his group referred to Saudis with tribal roots as 220 volt and those from the settled population whose last name do not show a tribal connection as 110 volt. The 220s have more juice, he said. We all know who is who. As a young Saudi brimming with ideas, Mohammed is just the sort of person I assumed would be enthusiastic about Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's Vision 2030 plan. The agenda calls for developing new industries to diversify the economy away from oil revenues, trimming unsustainable subsidies, and supporting Saudi entrepreneurs across the country. In reality, however, Mohammed was growing disillusioned with the rhetoric about supporting the private sector. He complained bitterly that the government was snapping up all the talented Saudis and paying them twice what he could offer. As a result, it was nearly impossible to build human capital in private businesses. The government talked a lot about supporting entrepreneurial Saudis, he said, but it was adopting a state-centric approach to development that looked a great deal like what had been tried previously. I began to understand the challenges with reforming the Saudi state. The kingdom has immense resources at its disposal, yes, but for generations, it has used its wealth to provide cushy state jobs and a generous welfare state to its population in exchange for their loyalty. Can the monarchy simply take away the benefits that Saudis have grown used to and come to expect? What they're really doing is altering people's basic social contract with the government, Mohammed said. You're telling people that they're not going to have as high a standard of living as their parents. Scene two, Riyadh, February, 2020. Iman, a Saudi woman in her thirties, became interested in physical fitness while pregnant with her first child. She started out at her backyard and what started as a hobby became an obsession. After a while, she began posting videos of her workouts on Instagram as a way to educate and inspire Saudi women in a similar position to hers. That's when the comments started. She said her neighbors started to whisper about her. What was she doing posting videos of herself on the internet in workout clothes? She told me, you'd get people looking at my Instagram and saying, what is she doing? Do her parents approve? Iman credits the government for putting an end to this whisper campaign. The state's social liberalization agenda is moving along faster than its economic diversification efforts. The lifting of the prohibition on women driving, the encouragement of female employment, and the appointment of a few Saudi women to high positions in government all added up, Iman said, to a clear message for people like her neighbors that what she was doing was not only legal, but encouraged. Shortly before we spoke, Iman had opened up her own female-only gym. She credited the state's decision to speak positively about women's role in public life as making it possible for her to do so. Of course, there are still people who don't want women driving and all those ideas, but they have to be quieter now, she said. The government has also imported American Entertainment Acts to signal to its population and foreign media that it is moving away from the conservatism that has long defined the kingdom. The day after I met Iman, I went with a young Saudi friend, Fahad, to a world wrestling entertainment match put on in a stadium in the north of Riyadh. Fahad could barely contain his excitement. Like many Saudis, he had been raised on American television his entire life. Now his heroes were in his hometown, in the flesh. It seemed like, he told me, that Saudi Arabia was finally joining the rest of the world. Fahad, an inspire aspiring actor and film producer, 
showed up to our first meeting wearing a hoodie emblazoned with the American flag. He's also a fervent supporter of Mohammed bin Salman. His iPhone case features an image of the crown prince gazing off into the middle distance. For him, love of MBS is a natural extension of his embrace of a more liberal Western culture. They are two sides of the same coin. But the truth is, the social liberalization embraced by both Iman and Fahad is not available to all Saudis. Women from a higher economic class in the major cities have more opportunities, but gender roles in poorer and more rural areas of the kingdom continue unchanged. While traveling in more remote parts of the kingdom, I would rarely interact with women. I became used to sitting with my male interlocutors in their salons while their wives and sisters prepared lunch, only, the, only to be ushered into the dining room when all the women had quietly made their exit. Many Saudis are simply priced out of the new entertainment options. And for potential actors like Fahad, the opportunities are not as plentiful as they had hoped. The Saudi state has poured hundreds of millions of dollars into importing foreign acts like the WWE, but has invested only a fraction of that sum into nurturing homegrown talent. Fahad won a supporting role in one play, but was subsequently disappointed to learn that he was expected to perform without pay. His acting career has been stalled ever since the onset of COVID. He has spent the pandemic stuck at home with his parents. I hope me and my friends will return strongly and probably we will work on new projects, he told me recently sounding as if he was forcing himself to be optimistic, because a lot of the projects that we thought we would do this year were canceled or delayed. Scene three, the desert outside Damam, November, 2020. I've been looking forward to this all week, said Soraya, turning around from the front seat to look at me. I've been telling myself that if I get through this work week, I have this at the end of it. We were driving out of Damam, an Eastern city on the Persian Gulf. Beneath the sands and water here lies the oil that represents the source of Saudi Arabia's wealth. It is this prize that attracted American diplomats, oil men and spies to the kingdom in the first place and which continues to fuel the US-Saudi alliance. But on this trip, oil was far from everyone's minds. The desert provides many Saudis with a space away from the obligations and prying eyes of the city. Some desert camps I visited were extremely elaborate, featuring tents equipped with satellite television and separate areas for a personal chef. This time I had fallen in with a group of 20 something Easterners who were hauling their makeshift camp in the trunks of their cars. Coolers full of meat and drinks, carpets and foldable chairs, and enough wood and coal to make a roaring fire. On the outskirts of Damam, Soraya's brother picked up his girlfriend who removed her hijab once in the car and put on American rock music. When we, when we arrived at the camp at dusk, other couples were already cuddling in discreet corners near the fire or strolling across the sand dunes nearby. After greeting the few dozen people gathered there, a friend and I peeled off to pay our respects at a nearby wedding. We found a group of maybe a hundred tribesmen gathered in the open air. They apologized for the small size of the wedding, saying it would have been larger, but for COVID. The men, and this event was only for men, milled around and made small talk while staff prepared massive plates of rice topped with baby camel for the coming feast. The groom, a young man with a wispy beard who scarcely looked older than 20, wore a black gold trim cloak and sat near the center of the gathering, accepting well wishes from all who passed by. When I returned to the campsite, I showed photos of the wedding to Soraya. 
She took a long look at the groom. He looked scared, she said. I wondered whether she was projecting her own emotions onto this man. Yes, people may have boyfriends and girlfriends, she said, but her parents would have a large say in who she will marry. Every time they sit me down to discuss a possible match, I just freeze, she said. Saudi Arabia may be diverse, but it is no melting pot. Saudi society is atomized and each world comes with its own set of rules and expectations. Soraya wanted to find a way to merge her different worlds so that they wouldn't be in perpetual conflict, but couldn't figure out a way to tell her parents that she wasn't ready to get married. The only options available to her appeared to be to keep these communities forever separated or have them crash into each other violently. A cloud passed over Soraya's face as we discussed her dilemma, but it soon passed. This was the event she had been waiting for the whole week after all, and she wasn't going to ruin it with her worries about the future. She turned the conversation toward a happier topic. And then we sat back and listened as two young women approached the campfire to sing an off-key duet of the Eagles Hotel California. You can check out anytime you like, they sang, but you can never leave. This part of my life began in 2011 when I moved to Egypt to cover the Arab Spring. The high hopes both I and other reporters had for the dramatic events unfolding in Cairo were not to be. Instead, it has been a decade marked by violence. I hid under a car near Cairo's Rabah al-Adawiyah Square as security forces opened fire on Muslim Brotherhood protests, protesters, interviewed Iraqis in Baghdad who had been newly made refugees by ISIS fighters, some of whom were their cousins and brothers, and picked up the pieces of my wrecked Beirut apartment last year after one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in history ripped through it. If we had been home at the time, my four-month-old son would have been sitting in the midst of the shards of glass and splinters of wood that tore through our home. Such traumas come with a cost, not only to me, obviously, but to the societies torn apart by them. The Saudi state's pitch to its citizens is essentially that it has spared them the turmoil that has gripped much of the Arab world over this period, while simultaneously paving the way for gradual reform under its watchful eye. But beneath the surface, profound changes are coming to Saudi Arabia. I began these remarks by trying to explain my reluctance to make sweeping claims about where a large, diverse country is heading. But as I, as I look to the kingdom's future, I am watching to see what happens when Saudi Arabia's hidden worlds collide. The kingdom's new order is bringing long existing divides within Saudi society out into the open. The old state enforced social norms belied a more complex culture, but served to enforce a public uniformity. If people were going to violate those norms, and they most surely did, they largely did it behind closed doors. Similarly, the old balance of power between several different senior princes ensured that economic benefits would be spread widely through several different patronage networks. Today, the concentration of power at the top of the Saudi state may resolve the institutional paralysis of years past, but it also risks heightening the disparity between the haves and the have-nots. The different worlds within the kingdom that long remained hidden from view, even from fellow Saudis, are more visible than ever before. And all this is coming at a time when the Saudi state is less capable of wielding its oil revenues to mitigate discontent among various constituencies. Now, everyone can see who attends WWE matches 
or goes to the movies to watch the latest Hollywood blockbuster. And while the new economic order has imposed financial pain on many Saudis, it has also made a minority in the kingdom extremely wealthy. Those left on the outside looking in are increasingly asking, why not me? I do not know how this will play out. Over the past 80 years, American diplomats and intelligence officers have regularly predicted the incipient meltdown of the Saudi state. And every time, the monarchy proved more stable than the outsiders predicted. But that old order is passing into history, and it remains to be seen whether the order that is replacing it is equally resilient. None of my work over the past two years would have been possible without the invaluable support of the Institute of Current World Affairs, which championed a difficult project under the most challenging of circumstances. I am forever grateful to Gregory Pfeiffer and the entire ICWA board for giving me this opportunity. In a country where most of the media attention focuses on the machinations of a handful of princes, you provided me with the opportunity to explore the lives of the people who inhabit, it, inhabit this fascinating and diverse country. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, David. I, you know, I must say I, I found this a, a really, really insightful uh, presentation. And I, I, first of all, um, obviously, uh, kudos go to you for you know having been willing to spend so much time in a country, as you say, we, we knew relative, or at least that the average audience knows relatively um, little about. Um, and then, of course, uh, kudos as well to the institute for again, providing you the, the opportunity to really uh, follow through on this kind of immersive fellowship and where you go into countries that, again, are relatively unknown uh, and where there's so much below the surface that obviously um, is not really covered in the West. Uh, I must say, I, I reread your, your reports as I was preparing for this. Um, and if I can just digress for one second, as you know, my fellowship was on Libya and uh, it came through how much in a sense uh, all reports had in common. We were both reporting uh, on countries that were moving very quickly uh, from what were very traditional um, societies uh, kind of into the modern world uh, and needed to make uh, adaptations, adaptations that were really pushed forward by the incredible amounts of money that oil was providing to both of these countries. So again, it, it brought kind of back a lot of memories uh, of my own uh, fellowship and some of the uh, you know, some of the topics that I reported on. Uh, and I want to make sure that we have enough time. I see that there's already a number of questions that are being generated by your audience. Uh, but let's, over the next 20 minutes or so, uh, maybe dig into a couple of the issues that you mentioned. Um, and the first one uh, that really struck me was that, uh, on the one hand, you very briefly mentioned reforming the Saudi state. Uh, and then you talked quite a bit about reforming the Saudi economy. Um, and in a sense, you, you disconnected those a little bit. Um, and I wanted, to, I had a, a specific question about that because um, as you know, you know, Vision 2030, that blueprint for development um, of, of the Saudi economy, um, in a sense is very ambitious, first of all, um, for what it contains in terms of economic reform, uh, but also be, uh, for what it contains in uh, the reform of Saudi uh, society and by implication, um, for the Saudi state. And you talked um, very eloquently and I think accurately about um, you know, a new social contract that's emerging um, in Saudi Arabia. And here you have MBS, you know, Mohammed bin Salman, kind of at the center of all of this. And essentially to me, it seems like Mohammed bin Salman is particularly um, offering a younger generation who he has accurately perceived as being crucial to what happens to Saudi Arabia. 
he's offering them a bargain in a sense. He's changing the social contract. He's saying, as you accurately said, we're not going to give you the kind of entitlements um, that your parents had before uh, and so on. Uh, and in return for that, if you know these entitlements are, are going to be lowered for you, um, you know, we're going to offer you all kinds of sweeteners to make it, you know, to make it more palatable. Women are going to be able to drive, you know, we're going to have rock concerts. I mean, all the kind of things uh, that you describe. Um, and one question that came to mind to, to me here uh, is, first of all, um, how is the younger generation that perceiving all of this? We hear all these reports that it's particularly the younger generation that is supporting uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, any, any particular insights into that? Well, thank you so much, Dirk, for uh, for your comments, and, and I think it's a really perceptive question and, and points you made. Um, I think um, th there there's a tendency, especially from outsiders, I think, to talk about Saudi youth as a monolith when I, I don't really think they are. Um, there are conservative Saudi youth. Um, there, there are very ultranationalist Saudi youth, and there are Saudi youth who go to rock concerts. Um, I. Um, I, I think it serves the Saudi state very well to, to sort of claim the mantle of youth and, and Mohammed bin Salman himself is obviously a young figure who sort of identifies with um, Saudi youth just based on his, his, his profile. Um, but but I, 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 am, I am hesitant to make a statement that about what all Saudi youth are, are thinking. Um, you know, um, I, I tried to express in my in my remarks that there are absolutely Saudi youth who want to open gyms, who want to go to these concerts, and the the people who do that absolutely love Mohammed bin Salman. There are also more conservative Saudi youth who have the same gripes that their parents do about how he's sort of undermining the social conservatism of the kingdom. Um, obviously, we hear more about the ones who like to attend rock concerts. Um, one, I, I want to say one of the challenges that I, I found with my fellowship is that accessing the real conservative segments of the population was certainly the most difficult um, part of my job. Um, th these these are people who I, I mean are, are not are not looking to to befriend a nosy foreigner, um, but but are also um, being extremely quiet on the Saudi scene right now. Um, I hope that answered your question. I'm happy to flesh that out in more detail as you like. Yeah, no, very much it, it did, David, and a great answer, I think. And, and if you don't mind, uh, let me go back for a second again to uh, that notion that we just talked about, and that is the social contract. Um, and as you know, particularly in Western societies and so on, when we talk about social contracts, uh, social contracts in a sense are two-way streets. They're negotiated between the state um, and society. Um, and it seems to me that in many ways, uh, the new social contract that Mohammed bin Salman uh, seems willing to offer um, Saudi Arabia is very much still a one-sided one. It, it's top down, it's not negotiated with society at all. Uh, and so my question then is, um, how successful do you think uh, this can be in the long run, uh, you know, with young people who now have access to the internet or more exposed to uh, international uh, news media, etc. In other words, not the, the kind of the old uh, typical Saudi Arabia that we tend to think of. Um, can you really, um, and, and it also goes, for example, for economic reform. Um, you know, economic reforms tend to create all kinds of expectations, uh, tend to uh, create the beginning of a middle class that then, uh, you know, uh, pushes back uh, against uh, what the, the, the local governments want to do. They want uh, some kind of uh, input. In other words, that old social contract 
that tended to exist, um, you know, no taxation, therefore no representation, now gets altered very, very distinctly in Saudi Arabia. And my question is, how successful can that be um, if society itself really doesn't have a voice in helping to renegotiate that social contract? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think one of the things to that I learned when delving into the economic aspects of Vision 2030 and the changes going on in Saudi Arabia is that the um, blueprint or, or sort of the elevator pitch of Vision 2030 is not exactly the same thing as what is happening on the ground. Um, I, I talked to Saudis um, and also foreigners who expressed surprise that, okay, you say you have this very different development plan, but what you're doing is more large um, state-funded mega projects. You're, you're building mega cities in, in the Northwest of the country, entertainment complexes um, outside Riyadh um, and spending many, many billions of dollars on that. Um, and, and that is quite similar to what previous kings have done. Um, meanwhile, they, they're having a push and pull. They're, they're having trouble cutting some of these subsidies um, that, they, that they promised to cut sort of as part of the Vision 2030 plan. Um, that they're they're really having trouble sort of taking back the welfare state or, or sort of pushing back the welfare state in the ways that they have promised to. And, and the result is very large budget deficits, which they can afford for some amount of time, but they can't afford um, forever. Um, they're accruing um, a great deal of debt and are really dependent on still on the high price of oil. Um, so so I do think it's it's very important when discussing these things to sort of look at what is happening on the ground and not just what the Saudi state says it is doing. Um, when, you, when it comes to the social contract, you know, you're absolutely right that this is a, this is a top-down effort. The, the, this, is, this is an effort where the state is saying, these are the things we want to do. Um, and, you know, you, you can please support that. You know, you, you can support that or not, or you can support that or be quiet. Um, uh, one of the things that I learned, I've learned over the past decade in the Middle East is not to underestimate the power of sort of um, uh, authoritarian states um, that, that, you know, that they, they are sometimes more resilient than we expect. So I, I'm certainly not going to sit here and say, this is going to collapse tomorrow, or this is going to collapse within our lifetimes. Um, but these are certainly challenges that the Saudi state is going to need to navigate going forward. And if I could go back just a minute then, David, to what you just said, you know, when I look at Vision 2030 and particularly at some of these projects, you know, they're almost incredibly futuristic. You know, you mentioned Neom for a minute there, you know, this $500 billion development in the south of Saudi Arabia and so on. And my question, having nothing to do with the politics at this point is, but from an economic point of view, uh, and from the way that the Saudi economy is projected to kind of move forward and be able to diversify or not be able to diversify, um, to what extent are these kinds of futuristic projects that we're seeing uh, massively supported by literally thousands of expat um, advisors, to what extent is this really sustainable in uh, an economy like Saudi Arabia? Yeah, well, I mean, you have, um... Honestly, I think the best way to judge the sustainability and potential of success of these programs, of these megacities is looking back to the past generation of um, similar projects. You've had some successes like in Jubail and Yanbu, um, but you've had a lot of failures. Uh, King, the King Abdullah Economic City, um, north of Jeddah, 
is um, still largely empty. Um, and they're building a whole a whole nother generation of megacities when when you still have some that are incomplete or or sort of money pits. Um, I, I don't want to say that that all of them are going to fail. Um, Neom is a is a particularly ambitious project. Um, and it, it's hard to see sort of the financial sustainability of that going forward. Uh, the entertainment city outside of Riyadh uh, called Gidea, um seems to me to be a more financially sustainable option. Um, it is absolutely true that the residents of Riyadh, which is an incredibly large growing city, are starved for entertainment options. It, it wouldn't be surprising to me if you know something like that was one of the successes. Um, but but I do think there there is a broader question than sort of the particular successes or failures of each project. Uh, how, does a top-down state-centric approach work for you know a, a country of of thirty-something million that's that's growing increasingly complex, that's growing you know that that has that has more and more obligations and and needs piling up on it. Um, I, I do think it becomes increasingly difficult to manage a, a country like that with just a handful of people. Um, it, it seems to me you, you need to diversify your power base. You need to sort of, you need to disperse power am among many different people for, for it to work. But um, I, I'm, no, I'm no China scholar, but, but it, it seems like some of these states do sustain themselves for quite a while. Yeah, no, I agree. And I was particularly thinking about taking up Dalai Economic City where, you know, the population, as you know, is literally uh, one or two percent of what it was projected to be when, when initially it, it was uh, uh, planned for. Um, but another question that I kind of wanted to raise um, somehow in connection, and, and you didn't say anything about it in, in your presentation today, David, um, but, you know, it, it popped up a couple of times um, in some of your reports, um, is, as we know, um, the, uh, the, the relationship between the secular authorities and the religious authorities in Saudi Arabia um, has always been very narrow. And one of the things that um, Mohammed bin Salman has been doing is, um, at least kind of superficially and, and perhaps more than, than we know in the West, um, put a halt to the, uh, you know, the, the very uh, close uh, power relationship that the religious establishment had, you know, with, with the Saudi family. And I'm wondering if you, if you could say a word more about that. Yes, of course. Um, yeah, no, it is definitely something that that came up um, quite often in in my time. Um, among my interlocutors, um, among my sort of the friends that I made in Saudi Arabia, the neutering of the religious police was extremely popular, um, and and really, um, in re I'm talking in Riyadh, sort of upper middle class um, secular Saudis. Um, they, they were huge fans of that, and it, and it really did sort of change the fabric of Saudi society. Um, you know, the Wahhabism is um, based on sort of a, a, both a literalist interpretation of Islam, and um, the the second tenet is sort of ultimate loyalty to the to the ruler. Uh, my understanding is that um, the Al Saud, the leadership has essentially gone to the religious authorities and said, you might not agree with opening movie theaters, but I am the, I am the, I am the king. I am the person you pledged loyalty to. You have to support this. And essentially they have fallen in line. Um, one of the great questions, one of the, the central questions that I've heard diplomats and foreign experts look at 
sort of try to answer in Saudi Arabia is, is there going to be a backlash to this? Um, I, I'm specifically thinking of one conversation with a diplomat whose first question to me was, where's the next Juhayman? Juhayman Alatebi was the um, Saudi extremist who seized the Grand Mosque in Mecca in 1979. They are very curious about whether we will see a similar backlash now. Uh, my answer to him was, if there is another Juhayman, he is not answering my WhatsApp messages. Um, if those people exist, they are not people who have any interest in interacting with people like me. And at, at the moment, we I have seen no signs of it. Um, but it is implausible to me that you would teach people a certain ver version of Islam for generations and then expect them to do a one hit 180 degree turn overnight. Yeah, 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 I very much agree with you, David. Um, I, I had to, let me kind of uh, ask one final question before we open it up to our audience here, because I do see we have lots of questions uh, from the audience by now. Um, and my final question was is prompted by um, a report you did uh, when you went uh, to southern uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, and you know the, the border area essentially with Yemen, and as you know, we know Saudi Arabia is involved there in, in, in a proxy war. Um, and you described how that area was was poor, and, and you know it was a very good description, I thought, um, of all, the whole area. But what I missed there was, um, of course, a lot of uh, Muslims that live in that area are Shiite as opposed to uh, Sunni, uh, particularly as you get into Asir, and that has always been a very sensitive point for the Saudis. Uh, and I'm just wondering, any, anything more to say about that? Maybe you were careful in your report, uh, you know, I'm deliberately not, not mentioning this aspect um, of an internal uh, uh, kind of uh, reality in Saudi Arabia. Anything more to say about that at all? Oh, so I was in Jazan, which is um, overwhelmingly Sunni. It was um, 95, 99% Sunni. Um, I, um, Najran, Asir, uh, obviously the East, um, contains larger minority communities. But, but the area I was in um, was, was Sunni. So um, I, I didn't sort of gain any perspective onto sort of the religious minority um, dynamics in those areas. Um, I wish I did, um, uh, you know, uh, you, you, you're right to highlight it as sort of, um, as I was just describing sort of the different communities in Saudi Arabia, that, that is absolutely an important one. Um, but it, it just so happened that the place where I was able to make contacts and sort of build up relations was, was in a Sunni part of town. So, so I, I did not get a, a perspective on that. Yeah, fair, fair enough, uh, David. Um, and I have another minute or so, and I wanted to ask you very briefly then, um, I, read, I read one of your reports, actually a, a non-ICWA report in which you talked about the regulation in, in the, in the uh, Saudi economy. And it seemed to me that was a very, in a sense, a very positive uh, report where, you know, you, uh, certainly the, the, the tenure of, of the message that you seem to get across was that, you know, some regulation that in terms of regulation uh, within at least aspects of, of the Saudi economy, um, you know, that the regulation is very high and hence that kind of a bureaucratic capacity for the state that could serve it um, very well. And just in a minute, would you want to expand on that for, for you know, just a few seconds maybe? Sure. Um, you know, one of the things that I did, um, I, I tried to drill down into specific areas of the bureaucracy. Uh, what one study that I did was on the, the new bankruptcy law they had. Um, a lot of these laws have been um, informed by foreign experts. The bankruptcy law in, was um, 
greatly informed by conversations um, with the US government, for example, they, they sort of um, took a lot of aspects of the US bankruptcy law uh, in writing their own in writing their own law. Um, my observation from this sort of look at Saudi regulatory reform is that the problem is often not with the specifics of the law. That if, you, that if you're looking at the text of the law, you're, you're sort of missing the point. So for example, with the bankruptcy law, it, it has some problems, it could be better, but the larger problem is that the judges um, who, are, who are supposed to sort of um, enforce the law, interpret the law, um, are um, all, like all judges in Saudi Arabia, they're, they're religious jurists, they're trained in the Quran. They're not trained in sort of Western economic jurisprudence. Um, and the Saudis are aware of this problem and, and they've made several efforts to try to educate these judges. But it's really, really hard to take someone who spent their entire career learning the Quran and the legal interpretations from the Quran and say, okay, now you're gonna do Western style economic reform. So the law can be as good as it, as good as it can possibly be. But, but if you don't change that, fundamental culture, um, you're, you're sort of setting yourself up for some serious difficulties. Thank you. Thank you, David. Um, and I would suggest that we go to uh, the questions from the audience uh, at this point. Um, and I literally have about 25 or so in, in front of me. Uh, and so, David, you may want to kind of uh, limit your answers to manageable uh, time here. Uh, the first question is uh, from Lynn Hartshorn. Um, what percentage of Saudi young people um, actually have jobs. In other words, what's the job situation uh, like? And uh, you know, by extension, um, how is Vision 2030 uh, gonna affect all of this? Right, um, I, I don't know the percentage off the top of my head. Um, the Saudi government has statistics. Um, you know, um, they actually hired an Austrian economist to run their statistics agency um, because of sort of widespread complaints about the inaccuracy of the statistics the government keeps. Um, uh, so beyond the statistics, I will say that it, the, the important variable here is not only sort of young versus old, it's location. Um, Riyadh has been growing massively. And if you are in Riyadh, um, there are lots of job opportunities for you. If you are elsewhere in the country, or if you are in some of the outlying regions of, uh, whether it's Jazan or Najran, or I mean, e even even people are leaving Jeddah these days. Um, you are you are much more hard strapped to find a job. Um, so so yes, I, I I would say that 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 is the the key variable lo location in the country. And the second question really is is a very large question, David, um, and it really has to do with. Um, Saudi Arabia's um, foreign uh, relations, and particularly within the region, um, the relationship uh, you know between Shi, uh, Iran, uh, and and Saudi Arabia. Uh, any uh, one of the our viewers is asking: um, Is there a potential rapprochement uh, possible, um, or uh, in a sense, will Saudi Arabia continue to uh, push its agenda forward uh, in the region? Uh, how about Yemen? Uh, so a very, very broad question about how Saudi Arabia really sees its own foreign uh, relations at this point. Yeah, um, Saudi Arabia is a client of the United States and most of the time Saudi Arabia tailors its foreign policy to accord with US foreign policy desires. Um, it, often to the immense frustration of Saudi diplomats who, who think the US is leading them off the cliff. Um, 
that that's a way of saying that Saudi Arabia might have a rapprochement with Iran if they think that is where the U.S. is heading. We have certainly seen signs of sort of cooling Saudi-Iran tensions. I think so the Saudis pulling back a little since the Biden administration took power. You've seen the meeting of the intelligence chiefs in Baghdad. Um, the, you've seen sort of a renewed Saudi interest in a diplomatic resolution to Yemen. That doesn't mean they necessarily know how to get out of the war in Yemen, um, especially sort of with the Houthis so much on the front foot right now. Um, but I think it is a mistake to see the Saudis as sort of this single-minded actor that, that is going to burn all of its bridges to go to war with Iran. Um, the, the Saudis are obviously intensely um, skeptical, hostile towards the Iranian regime, um, but th they understand that they are sort of deeply embedded in a US security architecture and are not ready to relinquish that. Mm -hmm. uh, Michael Madison brings us back very quickly to, um, or very briefly, I should say, to Neom, uh, you know, that, that city that the MBS is trying to uh, build or have built, uh, you know, $500 billion. Uh, and, but his question is slightly different from the, the way mine was, David. He is asking um, what the, 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 the kind of the reaction has been um, internally uh, within Saudi Arabia and, and particularly also among some of the younger people. Neom is fascinating and I actually spend a long time, a lot, a lot of my time thinking about Neom. Um, the, a lot of people have moved to Neom. Um, a lot of sort of the best and the brightest of Saudi Arabia have gone to Neom to develop this project. I have not been, I would have loved to go. Um, were it not for COVID, I, I really hope that I would be allowed to go. Um, but they've sort of developed a separate culture out there that is distinct from what is happening in the rest of the kingdom. And when I talk about these sort of different worlds of Saudi Arabia going off in their own direction, I think a lot about Neom. Um, can, you, can you run a country from Neom? Can you run a large complex metropolis like Riyadh if you're spending all your time in Neom? Um, is that the best use of Saudi Arabia's best and brightest? I don't know, I haven't been there, but um, if you're just thinking about exacerbating economic and social divisions in the country, I think a lot about the divide between Neom and Riyadh and Jeddah and Jazan, which are really, which are like they're not in the same country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There is uh, one of our attendees, David, um, is asking very specifically uh, about the, the changing, if indeed changing, um, relationship between Saudi Arabia uh, and the Palestinians. Um, so um, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I spend a bunch of my time, and I didn't go into in my remarks, talking to Saudi ultranationalists. Um, when you talk to these people, um, there is a sort of a vitriolic anti-Palestinian discourse which is really surprising to hear and, and which you do not hear in much of the rest of the Arab world. At the same time, a great, most Saudis were brought up on a pro-Palestinian discourse um, and um, a, a discourse that, that really is sort of opposed to Israeli expansionism in the West Bank and uh, Gaza, obviously. Um, so I, I do think it is something that, that divides certain segments of the Saudi society. But again, this is, everyone is just watching and waiting to see what happens. This isn't something where there is 
a great deal of public debate, what should the Saudi state do? The Saudi state, the Saudi monarchy will, will do what it decides to do. And everyone else is hoping they sort of take their sides. It's sort of like uh, watching a watching a baseball game and hoping the Red Sox hit a home run. Like, you, I don't have much control over it, but uh, I sure hope they do, you know. Um, well, uh, a question that has uh, popped up a couple of times already um, is the role um, of social media um, in Saudi Arabia right now. And it, it kind of very quickly reminded me um, that when the Re Libyan revolution in 2011 took place, that a lot of the, uh, the, the rebels were actually in very close contact uh, with each other uh, through social media, for example. Uh, so again, kind of proving how important that has become in certain countries. And I'm just kind of wondering, um, as I know, you know, Saudi Arabia is one of the best covered countries in terms of using social media. Uh, a word more about that, perhaps, David, and, and its importance and where it's being used. Uh, is there a censorship, etc.? Oh, it's been extremely important um, for my own work, um, to sort of get a sense of certain communities or certain people to reach out to certain interlocutors. Um, what you saw, what, what we saw maybe five, 10 years ago was a very vibrant social media space that included a lot of different, um, a lot of different components um, of, of society. More recently, um, you do see sort of the rise of these ultranationalists on, on Saudi Twitter, um, people that will sort of both express their love of the crown prince and also sort of attack people that do not toe the line um, closely enough on, in, in their view um, for sort of a, a patriotic Saudi attitude. Um, but but I, find, I find social media invaluable. Um, it's, it, it is such an atomized place that, that it is sometimes the best place to go for conversations um, to, hear conversations at, at sort of a national level about various issues. Um, and the use of anonym, anonymity is very helpful for many Saudis to sort of express themselves more openly. Um, yeah. And in light of that, another question that extends it a little bit is um, what publications, what websites, what media sources are Saudis uh, able to see? Is there any kind of censorship? Yeah, um, th there is censorship. Um, I, I think during my time there, uh, Al Jazeera has never been allowed. Um, during my time there, obviously there was times when it was involved, when it was allowed. Um, other Qatar affiliated media, Islam, other Muslim Brotherhood of media is all banned. Um, Al Qaeda media is banned, obviously. Um, so, so there, there's absolutely censorship. Um, they are. I, I will say that they are extremely attuned to what the Western press says about them. Um, and sometimes I struggle to figure out why they care, um, but, but they absolutely do care about what the New York Times writes about them. Um, and I'm talking here about sort of educated English speaking Saudis in the capital, not, not all Saudis care about this, um, but, but th those outlets are allowed free reign, um, sort of they're, they're allowed access in a way that you wouldn't get in Syria, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, one question that inevitably, of course, comes up is uh, the reaction to the Khashoggi killing. Um, and just wondering, uh, one of our attendees is wondering uh, what kind of reaction um, you sensed, you know, kind of off the record in many ways. I'm sure this was not something you could probably publicly talk about, um, but, you know, that was conveyed to you in kind of off the record conversations uh, among friends and so on, uh, and what the impact of that has been in terms of 
the image um, that uh, Mohammed bin Salman has been trying to, you know, project for himself within Saudi Arabia? Yeah. Um, so especially when I first got to Saudi Arabia, the Khashoggi murder was um, front and center among a sort of a lot of um, of my Riyadh interloc interlocutors. Um, not so much about what it said about the Saudi state, but what what it sort of pretended for the history for the future of the U.S. Saudi relationship. A lot of people sort of were watching the the fallout and wondering whether this sort of meant the end of the American-Saudi partnership. Um, I think probably about a year into my fellowship, um, when you started to see American businessmen come back to the kingdom, um, I, I think the concerns about that really ended. I, and one of the stories of my, of my fellowship is that this prospect of a large break of between the US and the Saudis did not happen. The Saudis recovered their alliance with the United States. Um, from those days. Um, now, of course, when it comes to the murder itself, you had a variety of opinions. You had people that were shocked and appalled. And I also talked to people who said, basically, he had it coming. Um, those were the ultranationalists who basically said, oh, he's Al-Qaeda, he's a Muslim Brotherhood plant. He, you know, he, he, he was talking against us, so thank God. Um, but, but you really, you did have that divide. People were divided internally about that. Mm -hmm. Another question that uh, kind of refers directly back, David, to what you were talking about uh, was when you mentioned the emergence of greater inequalities in Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. And as you know, I think we both realize if you move your economy toward uh, an economy that relies more on entrepreneurship, private uh, entrepreneurship, uh, you're very likely to introduce uh, a greater bifurcation between those who have access uh, to capital and, and you know profit from it. And particularly, of course, in a country of Saudi Arabia that has relied very extensively um, on patronage um, in the past, and particularly patronage provided through the royal family. Um, and, and so um, the, our attendee is, is wondering um, if you think this will be um, a problem down the road, and if indeed um, it will get to the point where those who are not really profiting um, from this, uh, these economic reforms um, will, uh, you know, will kind of take to the streets, so to speak. Uh, take to the streets is an interesting question. I I I um I, I don't know about that. Um, I, I I don't mean to dismiss it. It it is totally it it is within the realm of the possible. But um, I, I simply um do not know about the future stability of the Saudi state. Um, the widening economic inequalities are absolutely true and absolutely happening. Um, I do not necessarily believe they are promoting, they are actually on the ground promoting more entrepreneurship. Uh, they certainly say they are, but that is something distinct from what is happening. What is happening is that there has been a centralization of power in the Saudi state under Mohammed bin Salman, and the people who are prospering are his clients. Previously, you had a situation where there were several poles of power and multiple sectors prospered because maybe you were a client of uh, Prince Sultan or, or Prince Abdullah, et cetera. And in, in a way that spread out wealth across different segments of the population because different princes had different bases of support. Um, now you have one preeminent prince in a way you haven't had since Ibn Saud. And that creates this severe divide between the haves and the have-nots. And if I was someone, you know, and I will be watching the kingdom going forward, that, that is something that I would pay a great deal of attention to. And a great question from uh, Susan Lee uh, for you, David. Um, and that is, 
uh, you know, we uh, realized that there was this kind of special relationship almost between the Trump administration and uh, Mohammed bin Salman and uh, the reaction to the Fasholdi killing and, and so on. Um, and the question from Susan is, uh, to what extent uh, do you expect changes uh, that will take place during the Biden administration and how that will affect um, the relationship between uh, Saudi Arabia and, uh, you know, its traditional uh, superpower patron, in a sense, the United States? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, obviously, it's not going to be the Trump administration, but I am not sure that it is going to sort of, I, I'm not sure we're going to see revolutionary change in the relationship. I think the, the approach of the Biden administration is to basically test the Saudis and to see, okay, are, are you going to come back into the fold and sort of support our policies, um, you know, winding down the war in Yemen, um, playing a more constructive role in Iraq, um, sort of um, making some changes on the human rights um, angle here by, by releasing some political prisoners. And, and if you are, we're, we're not looking to blow up the entire relationship. Um, to me, that, that sort of seems to me the tack the, the Biden administration is taking. That doesn't mean there can't be a crisis down the road, another Khashoggi killing, something like that, where the relationship sort of falls off a cliff. Um, but, but at the moment, um, I, I see no evidence they are looking to sort of cut Saudi Arabia loose. Another question from Courtney Doggart, and I hope I pronounced that last name correctly. Um, and it really goes back to something you mentioned, David, the kind of the divide that exists in Saudi Arabia between what is rural uh, and between what is urban. And in many countries, I'm, I'm thinking of particularly uh, in China, for example, um, where these economic reforms that rely more on market mechanisms take place, one of the uh, almost inevitable uh, uh, attempts uh, that is made is usually to bring rural population into the urban areas and to you know diminish the gap between what is rural and urban uh, and I'm, I'm particularly wondering in light of the fact what Michael Matheson was also talking about the fact that these uh, projects are so futuristic and seem to rely on a, a technocratic elite um, what is the future here in terms of urban uh, versus rural uh, population uh, and what uh, does the Saudi uh, state, does the Saudi government have any uh, particular stand on what it wants to do with, with these rural uh, population, with the, you know, the tribal uh, people away from the cities, for example? Oh, it's such a great question. Um, I, I really love this question. Um, I mean, basically what's happening is Riyadh is growing by re leaps and bounds. Um, I, I think they're, they're trying to plan to triple its population over the next 20 years. Um, so, so the rural populations are coming to the cities. Um, one story that I remember from Jazan is um, I was driving through a rural area uh, with a Saudi friend and he pointed to this highway and said, they took two years to build this highway up this mountain uh, to, to sort of this outlying village. And by the time they finished the highway, the village was gone. Everyone, everyone had moved to the city. Um, so, so we are really seeing a dramatic uh, migration of rural populations to the city. Um, whether that is sustainable uh, is certainly an open question. It, it takes a lot of resources for these people to, to move these people to the cities, to find jobs for them, to, to build housing for them. Uh, one of the most thankless jobs in the Saudi bureaucracy is the Minister of Housing, um, who, who is charged with sort of um, building a massive amount of housing in a short amount of time. 
and consistently falls short of his project of his um, goals. Um, it's it's one of the it's one of the things where they, they sort of always miss their uh, landmarks. Um, and for for a sort of uh, understandable reason, which is that the, the demands being put on these people um, uh, through this from this migration are, are really dramatic. Uh, and actually, it leads to kind of in, in a question also that one of our attendants uh, attendees asked uh, David. Uh, going straight back to what you were just talking about, in a sense, uh, the question is: Given the bloated civil service, um, surely the message—and I'm reading the the, the, the question verbatim here—surely the message is that Saudis need to recalibrate what they deem to be suitable jobs for Saudis. For example, semi-skilled roles such as uh, motor mechanic, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we're all familiar, uh, I think, or at least some of us are. You know, with the whole notion of the field system and all of that. Uh, and so again, this question: How do you um, how do you make it attractive? How do you make this kind of new economy um, where you know some of the jobs may not necessarily be managerial? How do you make that attractive to a young generation of um, of Saudis? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, it, it's it's sort of the central question that a lot of Saudi policymakers spend their time thinking about. Um, and a lot of people at the royal court are paid very good salaries to find answers to. Um, I, I mean, there, there's both, and, and let me be clear, th this is happening to some degree. Um, you do see Saudi baristas, you, you see Saudis driving taxi cabs. Um, and when I talk to my Saudi friends who have spent their lives in the kingdom, they say, you know, that if you came here 15 years ago, you wouldn't have seen this. Um, and I take them at their word. Um, but you can also look at the employment numbers and real, uh, for the private sector and realize this isn't happening nearly as fast enough given the sort of declining per capita oil revenues. Um, how do you make it more attractive? I mean, you know, they, they've tried to sort of um, give more money to Saudi, to sort of subsidize um, Saudis who take private sector jobs by um, giving them more money, that's the carrot. But there needs to be the stick, which is, Look, there are no more state jobs. That that you you can't find this government job, where um, you know the that that's going to pay you twice as much for half as much work, and that is not quite happening yet. David, we have two or three minutes left here, uh, and I just wonder. Uh, there's a, and I do apologize to our audience that I wasn't able to get through all the uh, questions. I tried to summarize them as much as possible. Uh, but I wonder, David, as, as uh, this session is kind of coming to an end, um, if you, in, in a couple of minutes or so, or, or just kind of by means of conclusion, uh, would want to tell us, um, you know, after having had this fellowship, been immersed in, in Saudi Arabia um, for so long, um, and obviously, you know, having been this kind of incredible witness uh, for the Institute uh, in, in terms of reporting uh, from Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, what is it that you would ultimately like your audience, the audience here, your audience for your newsletters, uh, and beyond that, as you move, uh, you know, professionally up. And uh, what uh, would you like us to retain uh, from those two years of studying um, Saudi Arabia? Yeah, well, thank you so much, Dirk. Uh, that, that's a really thoughtful question. Um, you know, I think um, one of the things I've been struck with by are the sort of stereotypes and characters of Saudi Arabia um as as sort of either you know arch conservative um incredibly wealthy um whatever it may be um there 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 are lots out there um and just to say that that this is an incredibly diverse place that that it is a place with um that contains multitudes of people 
um, who are not disconnected from sort of the broader interna international conversations uh, and, and have their sort of own dialogue and debates about the future of their country um, that, that are sometimes not accessible to, to foreigners, but, but, are, but are absolutely there and, and going on. And, and sometimes those debates do not track neatly onto our conception of the country. Um, I included that story about sort of this divide between tribal and settled populations, just to make that point, that that is not something I expected to, to be a main dividing line going into this fellowship, but, but actually did come up a fair number of times. Um, so, so just to accept the country on its own terms and, and, and accept that there, there is a great deal going on beneath the surface that we might not understand. Um, and, and also just that I, I ended my, my remarks with, with, by sort of hinting at this. A lot of the coverage about Saudi Arabia goes into the machinations of a handful of princes at the very top of the Saudi state. And the absolute, that, that's absolutely fair game. People absolutely should do that. Media should cover that. Um, but it is actually the society of Saudi Arabia, these societal cleavages that are going to determine the direction of the country. The reason we have Mohammed bin Salman doing what he is doing is because the old status quo was unsustainable. It is a reaction to what is happening on the ground in the society and, and just pure economic math of the country. Um, so, so I really do think that there, there also needs to be a refocus away from the elite level politics toward the society, because what happens in the society is going to determine the direction of the country. Well, thank you very, very much, David. I must say I found this very, very insightful and, and certainly you're very grateful for your uh, reporting, you know, over a two year period uh, where you were really, again, able to immerse yourself within Saudi Arabia um, as very few other uh, people have had a chance, I think, and again, kudos as well, not only to you, but also to the Institute for uh, making this possible. Uh, let me at this point then turn it over either to Courtney or uh, to uh, Greg. Wonderful. Uh, Dirk, thank you so much for your, your very skillful moderation and bringing all your knowledge to bear as well. Um, David, this is fascinating. Thank you. Um, on behalf of everyone who's who's listening. I, I learned so much and I think you, you really did capture um, but you were saying that that difference between our, our media is so focused on you know what's happening at the top, but really it's those the, those larger divides that are going to determine the shape of the country. And I think we all probably have a much better sense of what those are now. So thank you for making them so clear for us, um, and and to ICWA for a wonderful partnership and for doing these kinds of fellowships, which I think are so incredibly valuable to be able to get professionals on the ground for two years. Um, it's really uh, just, I think, so fundamental. And so um, hats off to you all for doing that. Thank you for listening to Network 2020's audio edition of this virtual briefing. Click on the link in the description below to view all of our upcoming events and find out how you can become a member and gain access to our members-only benefits.